Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. On today's show, we're joined by Scott Horton. Uh, Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, and the host of the Scott Horton Show. Scott also has uh, is the author of two books, Fool's Aaron, which is um, really just an incredible book on Afghanistan. It's where I get most of my talking points on Afghanistan right from that book. And then Enough Already, uh, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which was uh, published earlier this year. And... Uh, Everyone listening right now, this book, I, I mean, I feel like this is a real major accomplishment and it's really worth your time to read this. When I was getting started in, in foreign policy or, or when I was starting to get interested in foreign policy, I wish this book had been available because it, it catches you up on everything you need to know. And it's a, it's a relatively easy read. Like you're going to finish it within like a week or so. And it's not like cuckoo crazy stuff or... Um, topics that are so esoteric that you have to be a huge dork to be interested in. It, it really paints the narrative of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And, you know, it's using stories that most people are already aware of. Scott, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Henry. And it's great to be here. And thank you for saying that. That's exactly what I was going for with the book was, yeah. here's the story you already know, but let's just see if we can make sense out of it in one line through from Jimmy Carter to right now and make it make sense. I'm glad to hear you say that it does. Henry Perfect. also put me onto your uh, your YouTube um, uh, uh, playlist of all of the chapters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great way to get into it because I haven't actually picked it up yet, but you know, just that alone, really high production quality. And I, I wanted to ask you about all those screens that you had in the background. I think you might, you might have me beat for having more screens. Yeah, so... Um, that's uh, this great uh, documentary filmmaker named Gus Cantavero. Uh, he came and we just shot that all in one day. Wow. And he just said, you know, look, he's kind of after me for a while. Like, you know, you're working on those scripts and I, don't worry about scripts, man. We don't need scripts. We're just going <laughs> to knock this thing out. It's going to be fine, you know. And um, and then, yeah, we just kind of went through it where I was sitting right here only facing that way. And mm -hmm. um he just sat here and filmed me, and we just went through it uh, step by step. And then, you know, he's got two cameras, so he's going through and splicing the different yeah, really angles like together the, and the stuff. Angles, yeah. And then it like, comes to the footnotes, and then I just do my thing, which is, you know, send him a million links, and then he's got to figure out where to put them and mm -hmm. get them in the right spots and whatever, you know, and all that. But uh, I was really but, impressed with all yeah, the stuff, did a like great the maps job and things like that, you know, like those are super cool. Yeah, yeah. No, um, you said the maps you said yeah i i've always wanted to do that for our show to like kind of show a map with like a little like arrow and it's like here's where they're going you know yeah uh um yeah no he does a lot of good ones of those but you know i'm I'm trying to remember if he shows i think he does show 
the um, ethnic and religious maps of the region. Mm-hmm. That I got those, you know, I have those in the book, and they're on the websites for both books. Um, uh, at enoughalready.net or enoughalreadybook.net and uh, foolsaron.us. They have the maps there, and I got those from this guy named Michael Azadi, who's a professor at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And he just goes through and does like the most in-depth, uh, you know, color-coded maps of, you know, the whole region. Go look at his website. It's incredible. He's got all the different stuff he's got. But he's got, you know, the the full ethnic um, and sectarian maps of like everything from Egypt to Pakistan, right? Like all the entire what you could call the Middle East broadly defined. He's got it all in there. Um, and then also like the demographic changes in Baghdad as America helped the Shiites kick all the Sunni Arabs out during Iraq War II. And then you can see the change year by year by year as the city becomes a virtually entirely Shiite city. That kind of thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Maps and data like that are just like, I'm a nerd for stuff like that. So I'm going to have to check that out and maybe I'll lift it for the show. (laughs) Yeah, do it, man. Yeah, splice that in there. Yeah, if you just go to uh, enoughalreadybook.net and... I know for a fact at um, foolsaron.us that they're all available there. Cool. Cool, man. Thanks. Yeah. So um, never has there been a book that I like so much made me so angry. I don't know how much you're getting that as a reaction, but like I'm listening to this. I'm, I'm reading this book and all of a sudden, like, I'll just be like, those bastards out loud. And then my fiance will be like, what are you? Who are you yelling at? And I'm like, I'm yelling at Scott Horst's book. Butch let him get away at Dora Bora. And she's like, what are you talking about? There's a lot of uh, invoking uh, of anger. So I don't know. How often are you So right now, I, I just finished. I, I recorded most of it earlier in the spring, but uh, I'm just going through. I finished finally a couple of weeks ago recording the last bit of it. And now I'm going through and editing the audio book, which is just me reading my own book out loud. And then, yeah, no, it makes me madder than hell, too. So here I am, not just reading it out loud. Now I'm sitting here listening to myself reading it out loud. (laughs) Oh, I just, and it's W. Bush is the worst of them all. But Barack Obama, too. And and the generals, David Petraeus. um, And, you know, it's funny because one of the, I guess the last, um, the last comment on Fool's Errand on Amazon.com is full of, facts and vitriol and he complains that i'm like trying to make you so mad and that i'm talking so much smack against the people i'm finding guilty here which and i take the criticism like if that's if that's not what you were looking for (laughs) i could see how it's just a bit much but at the same time i mean my book is about to boil it down to one of its major themes, it's about how America's still back in Al-Qaeda and has almost this whole time where their war against us and our war against them as it took place in the 90s and 2000s, where that's just the aberration. We're mostly from Jimmy Carter through right now. America still backs these guys. And it's pretty infuriating. I mean, especially when you look at like the war in Syria I mean, to think that the war in Syria could have happened the way it happened after Iraq War II, after we'd already been through Iraq War II, for them to go on to Libya and Syria 
for this to be a dimension where that was even possible at all. The American people didn't all, you know, see it in Washington, D.C. and go and stop that from happening. You know, I mean, it's just it is it's madness. USA backing the suicide bombers after they'd done it to us already. You know, you think it's funny when they're just blowing up people overseas somewhere. They come and kill 3000 of our people. We're supposed to get it now that, okay, well, we don't want to back suicide bombers anymore, at least. But no. And it is it's it's absolutely maddening. And it's because there's no accountability. And so it's because and so therefore they continue on doing things that are absolutely infuriating. It's crazy. And as you said at the beginning, it's not a conspiracy theory book, right? This is not the kind of thing where like, if you believe me, then that's pretty bad. Like, no, it, you don't have to believe me. It's all true. It's all in there. And it's all, you know, what's not, um, you know, delineated in its source material is plenty searchable and, and provable, you know? I guess the one conspiracy theory, I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory, but I guess the one, the one point that you make, I agree with this point, by the way, but when you claim that Bush intentionally let uh, bin Laden uh, escape to Pakistan at Tora Bora. And I do um, admit you know, that that's using, a circumstantial case, a, a speculative case, but a, a pretty good one, I think. No, I think it's a really good one. And the only defense that I hear, I was listening to, um, I think... Michael Scheuer on on like an old episode of, of uh, probably like 10 years ago or so. And you were asking him about it. And his defense was you. He, he was like, did they let him go? And he's like, no, it's all the lawyers. It's just the lawyers and all these decisions are made by law. And that's it. And, you know, I feel like you'd be kind of blunt about that. But I feel that's that's kind of the defense of a lot of weird, compli- complicated things like, oh, it's just the lawyers in Washington. Like, that's why our foreign policy or that why that's why we couldn't do that. That's why we let bin Laden escape to Pakistan when we had the military assets to to capture him or at the very least riddle him with bullets. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a plausible deniability kind of thing where you plug that in wherever you want. But look, these men at that time, George Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and George Tenet, they were canceling every law in the book. They were canceling the whole Constitution in the name of the commander in chief clause overrides all. This president can torture people to death and there's no law and there's no treaty. And there's no part of the Constitution that can stop him from doing it. That was their theory at the time. And then they say, oh, yeah, no, some Air Force Jag said we couldn't kill. The greatest enemy this country's had since Tojo. Come on. You know. It's David Addington. Is that the lawyer we're talking about? Dick Cheney's man said we can't do it. I don't believe that. Some lawyer at the Pentagon said that. Well, why didn't they ask David Addington? David Addington says we could torture people to death. David Addington says the president of the United States can do anything. So, you know, and then they hide behind. Well, you know, we didn't want to stir up some Pakistani tribal chiefs or whatever. Well, why the hell not? I'm supposed to believe they cared about that. You know, and see, here's the thing, man. In a way, there's something to it. We're like, once a decision has been made, now you're innocent for going along with it. So they had decided on a strategy, which, come on, man, this is wink, nudge, BS. 
but they had decided officially to focus on the Taliban and regime change and that getting Al Qaeda was important too. But as Bush said, hey, as long as bin Laden's on the run, then that's good enough for me. That's not the mission. Getting bin Laden was not the mission. In fact, I wish I'd had this quote in the book. I only recently saw it. It's in um, the movie 9-11 Press for Truth. There's a clip of um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Richard Myers, saying the goal was never to get bin Laden. And I have a quote from, uh, that's a direct quote uh, from Meet the Press. And, and there's a thing from this last, I guess, February, it could be January still, in reaction to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. NPR News interviewed Robert Grenier. Who's Robert Grenier? Was well, a former CIA officer who used to be the station chief in Islamabad. And part of my case for them deliberately letting Osama bin Laden go is that Robert Grenier had already worked out deconfliction with the Pakistani Army and Frontier Corps that when bin Laden, when and if he flees across the border into Pakistan, and we expect the Delta Force to be hot on his heels, that we want to protect from friendly fire. So we have a deconfliction line already set up. Robert Grenier, at least in his book, he claims he had done his job and had set up a deconfliction line. And then he makes excuses for bin Laden getting away. Well, I don't know. He took the wrong valley or some kind of thing. I forgot his excuse. He doesn't buy in the book that they let him get away either. But he's, to me, part of the case that they did, if you take his word for it on that. But anyway, so this same guy, who, in other words, had this peripheral role in the hunt for bin Laden at the time, he is interviewed on NPR News about January 6th. And he's making this horrible analogy, and we'll get to the analogy in a second. But to set up for the analogy, he explains to the NPR news reporter, he says, you know, in the war on terrorism, we could have focused directly on bin Laden and Al Qaeda. But we, and he doesn't use the word wisely, but he's clearly like agreeing that this was the smart thing to do the way he describes it. And he says, but we decided we wanted to focus more on kind of this broader milieu of extremism in which al-Qaeda was thriving. And that meant the Taliban. Well, just this is the parentheses for the sake of our discussion. In his analogy, the January 6th rioters were al-Qaeda. And the broader milieu of the Taliban that they want to focus on that are the real enemy of the new domestic war on terrorism. Well, that's just the American right wing. That's everybody to the right of the center is the Taliban. And, you know, this is the mindset of these freaks in Washington, D.C. But anyway, go back to set up for the analogy. We could have gone after the guilty. This organization of 400 Arab, Saudis and Egyptians hiding in Afghanistan Bin Laden and his closest friends and associates and their bodyguards and hangers on, you know, Chechen militia men or whatever. And we could have just flattened them flat. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to go after the Taliban and Kabul. And they'll just tell you. So in other words, 
where, you know, maybe where I go wrong in the book is I sort of imply or I don't I don't fill in the the space correctly. And so it sort of seems like I'm saying like they had this whisper conversation. Like, oh, let's let him go. But it's more like, no, they said, look, getting bin Laden's not the goal. Right, everybody? Right. <clears throat> so then now it's not like a secret weird conspiracy, right? It's this is the policy that they decided. And it's all this is in so much of this is in Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War. And you know, they just gave Bush told the White House staff, give everything to Bob, good old Bob. You know, court historian, Washington Post guy. We like him, we trust him. And who wants to go through the trouble of deciding what to tell him? Just give him everything. And everybody has permission to talk to him. So we got all kinds of interviews with these kooks. Of course, they're all pointing the fingers at each other, but uh, which is fine. And there's some honesty and some dishonesty there. It's nice to hear at least their accusations on the firsthand basis. But they also just gave him the National Security Council minutes. So they have in their direct quotes from the minutes, from the note takers from the meetings where Rumsfeld is saying and Bush is agreeing, especially the two of them, that, look, man, if we get bin Laden, that's not victory. And if we fail to get bin Laden, that's not failure. And this war is a big, broad, wide, giant thing. And we got to make sure the American people recognize. Rumsfeld says maybe we should start bombing Baghdad right now just so the American people understand. This war is not to be isolated to Tora Bora in Nangarhar province, getting those that got us. That's not what it is. It's everything we want to do from now on. It's Paul Wolfowitz's entire agenda for greater Israel and whatever you got. Now we're going to do whatever we want. And we're going to use, you know, this, um, you know, travesty and tragedy as an excuse to do it. And, you know, lately I've been trying to give credit to the 9-11 truthers that as much of a distraction as all that was and as bad as most of that their reasoning has been, that ultimately you got to hand it to them. George Bush and Dick Cheney might as well have done it. What difference at this point does it make, as Hillary Clinton would say, whether W. Bush actually did 9-11 himself, which I don't I'm not saying that he did, but I'm just saying. He killed a million people in their name. He exploited the grief and the fear of those survivors and the rest of the country in order to get away with attacking a bunch of people who never done anything to us at all, who didn't threaten us in any way at all. And then, you know, as I document in the book, starting with W. Bush and then continuing through Obama and through this to this day, I took the side of Al Qaeda in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. And in Syria and Yemen to this day, America, through the Turks, backs al-Qaeda in the Idlib province in Syria and backs al-Qaeda, which is a.k.a. UAE's militia on the ground in the war in Yemen, fighting against the Houthis. To this day, it's the highest treason. You can't make this stuff up. And so why wouldn't they have done it? Right. If they had had the opportunity to do it themselves, if they could get away with this, they would have apparently. Do you think that it relates to, um, <clears throat> I was watching your videos earlier and you were talking about in one of your chapters how uh, during the Operation Desert Storm, they were able to get rid of the Vietnam syndrome, mm -hmm. right? And they had this, 
you know, idea that, you know, America's back and, you know, we have the ability to run these quick, effective operations, you know, and we're going to have this, you know, new world order doctrine about how we're going to run, you know, NATO's, you know, bidding or the Security Council's, you know, uh, decisions, and we're going to enforce them all. Do you think that, that, that getting rid of that Vietnam syndrome early on in, in Desert Storm helped us to be able to parlay the tragedy of 9-11 into, you know, the broader, you know, uh, m- more recent war on terror? Yeah. And and I think that this is part of their excuse for letting bin Laden escape, too, was, well, we just want to keep it light and fast. In fact, some of them would invoke the the kind of lessons that I'm talking about in the book that they saw that bin Laden was trying to get us to repeat the Russians' mistake. This is something that Rumsfeld, I think, specifically invoked that we don't want to get bogged down like the Russians here. That's what they're trying to get us to do. And we're smarter than that. So we want to stay light and fast and air power. But then, come on, how light and fast are we talking when you send in Delta Force Team B, but you pull out Team A when they get there? Like, we can't even have two teams of Delta Force guys. That's really light and fast. You know, as compared to all the people we sent there in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We got 20 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, and even in December 01, we got Rangers in uh, Bagram Air Base. We got Green Berets up in Mazari Sharif. And we got Rangers, more Rangers and Marines down in Kandahar province. And we got Delta Force and CIA paramilitaries at Tora Bora begging for reinforcements and being told no, 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 no for weeks. And that's the thing of it. When, you know, I, I rely heavily on these books, Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson and Kill Bin Laden by Thomas Greer. And that's the CIA commander on scene and the Delta Force commander on scene during this. Now with Dalton, that's Dalton Fury's uh, uh, alias? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's Thomas Greer is uh, a.k.a. Dalton Fury. And, and people can watch him on 60 Minutes talking about all this too. But basically, you know, these guys say over and over again, they're beating you over the head with it. They go, they just couldn't understand why they wouldn't give us the reinforcements that we needed. And it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, we did to understand. You see what's going on there. They had to make a show of like, hey, we did drop some bombs. We took the risk that we might have got bin Laden. You know, we had a demonstration, but they clearly were not trying to devote whatever was necessary to getting the guilty. They just weren't. And, you know, just to belabor the point a little bit, why couldn't our troops have just followed them into Pakistan? Let's say our guys are so busy invading Somalia right now that we can't spare anyone else to follow bin Laden into uh, Pakistan. Fine, why not send the Delta Force guys that you have? Why not let them give chase? And the way they always talk about this, almost always, and I'm sure you've all heard this, your audience has heard this a million times, well, they slipped across the border into Pakistan. And then you're just supposed to make up the rest of the story yourself. You're just supposed to have to say to yourself, well, I, I guess I couldn't follow them into Pakistan. Johnson, they got away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like. There must be like a big waterfall or something that, you know, I don't he disappeared know. behind or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah they, um, <laughs> I always thought of like, um, and, you know, I asked my mom because my mom loved old movies and I was trying to get her to think of a good example of this. So I could cite it specifically. 
and and it wasn't Smokey and the Bandit. I don't know what the hell it was, but there's some scene from some old movie or some old TV show, which I thought was a cliche, like had happened a lot of times. Usually people seem to know what I'm talking about, but I can't find any examples of it. But anyway, it's when the bank robber successfully crosses the county line or the state line and the sheriff has to come to a screeching halt and gets out of the car and he throws his hat on the ground and stomps on it and goes, you know, something like that. Um, Or, you know, another great analogy is they jumped into hyperspace. And I'm sorry, my lord, they could be on the other side of the galaxy by now. I don't know what to tell you. You know, they got away. It's like Han Solo uh, escaping stormtroopers uh, from Tatooine. Yeah, exactly. But so in this case, though, what are we talking about? We're talking about our elite stormtroopers chasing after some sand people in flip-flops on the ground. And they're on their way where? They didn't cross the border into Russia or China. We're listening, Henry. If you said to me, but Scott, they crossed into Russia. We can't send our troops across the border into Russia. I would say to you, Henry, you make a great point. But that's not what happened here. They went to Pakistan. And Pakistan's a friendly country. And America, the only reason that they backed the Taliban is because America told them to in the Bill Clinton years. And after September 11th, the Deputy Secretary of State, Dick Armitage, called Pervez Musharraf, the uh, dictator, the military dictator, Pakistan, and said, you're going to do everything we say or we're going to reduce your country to the Stone Age. We will, in other words, we will use H-bombs on you. You now are in our service. And Pervez Musharraf said, of course, sire, what would you have us do, my lord? And completely put Pakistan in the service of the United States government, especially now. You want to say it started back in the Afghan Taliban against us in 2004? Fine. But that's not what we're talking about here. And Robert Grenet writes in his book, again, that they were completely cooperative in every way with his attempt to set up deconfliction to prevent friendly fire. So in other words, they might as well have crossed from Louisiana into Texas and okay, so fine, the state troopers can't follow them, but the FBI can. The Delta Force sure as hell can. Makes no difference. And, they, and, and again, you know, their excuses are so shoddy. And I can hear, you know, I had forgotten what you say there, quote Michael Scheuer. I could imagine him saying that. And I could maybe even imagine. I was, paraphr- I was paraphrasing him, but he said something along the lines. It's all lawyers and stuff like that. He didn't contribute it to malice. You know, there may be something to that, but look, how come Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Tenet didn't override those lawyers and say we're doing it anyway? I mean, these are guys who tortured people to death. These are guys who started wars against countries that didn't attack us whatsoever. At the same time, they let bin Laden go. They're sending the Delta Force to Somalia to hunt a couple guys on the FBI's wanted list from the coal attack and the embassy attack. You know, so... They weren't worried. They have a declaration of war against Somalia. They have authorization for that or they do whatever they want. You know, and and, you know, Gareth Porter one time did an interview with an army colonel, I guess, who explained like, no, man, we were really worried about stirring up some of the local tribal people in Pakistan there. Well, I just don't believe that, that they were worried about that. What the hell do they care? If some local Pakistani sheep herders, I care, but what the hell do they care? If some local Pakistani sheep herders want to throw themselves between the Delta Force and Osama bin Laden, 
bad call, brother. You know, we're here hunting a six and a half foot Arab. You stay the hell out of our way and we won't have a problem. This is the American military we're talking about here. These guys are bullies par excellence. They're not going to not go after their top quarry that you could possibly imagine because of some local Pakistani tribesmen when nobody thought the plan was to stay in Pakistan. Nobody was saying that, oh, yeah, no, because these stirred up Pakistani tribesmen are going to be a real problem for us in the future. They weren't going to be occupying Western Pakistan. That was never the plan. We're talking about hot pursuit here. That's all. And the fact that, you know, and, and by the way, in the New York Times last week, they had one with, well, what happened was Bin Laden, he melted across the border, usually he slips across the border. I guess this guy, he's made of butter. He's very slippery and melty. And he just, you know, and he's, the guy's walking on, you know, he's on horseback or on foot, you know, walking across. Can you imagine, can you imagine Donald Rumsfeld saying, we cannot violate the indigenous people there. They have been unmolested for centuries. We can't do that. Right, right, yeah. Like it'd be it'd be breaking the fourth wall on some Amazonian tribe, you know, that is isolated from the rest of humanity. Oh, we don't want to show them technology or, you know. Um, but yeah, it it sounds like complete horseshit. And uh, I mean, they could have just paid them, right? Right? Like, I mean, that could have been a solution. Here's um, money. Or... You know, maybe they would have taken the money and not handed them over. Hey guys, uh, we just want to tell you about a game that we've been playing, uh, a video game we've been playing uh, called Conflicts of Nations. And if you listen to this show, I think you guys are going to enjoy playing it. Conflicts of Nations is a free online PvP strategy game. It's a game where you choose a country, you lead it through a war, a modern war, and it's a real-time tactical combat system allowing players to take command of a modern battlefield. Danny, you've been playing a lot. What's your experience been? I've been absolutely addicted to this game, uh, playing it nonstop. Uh, I got stuck with Syria uh, for my first battle, and uh, I ended up taking over the entire Arabian Peninsula in about three days. And now I literally can't stop looking at my phone, waiting for updates. You know, in this game, you can fight up to 128 other players in real time in games that can take weeks to complete. And there's over 100 beautifully modeled uh, modern weapon systems such as tanks, jets, nuclear submarines, nuclear ballistic submarines, combat attack helicopters, stealth strike fighters, airborne infantry units, and so many more. You know, the type of stuff that we talk on our show. So if you urge to nuke Danny or I, this is the best way to do it. So declare war on your neighbors or forge alliances with other players, and you can play this game on both PC and your mobile device. Again, that is Conflicts of Nations World War III. You can download it at the App Store or Play Store or play the web game at www.tv. All right, let's get back to the show. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Did I lose you? You're frozen on me there, Henry. Yeah, he looks a little bit frozen. Keep going. We'll get him. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, even if you don't trust that, but still just send the CIA paramilitaries and, and the Delta Force to do it. And if you watch that, you know, read the book, but if you just watch uh, Dalton Fury, uh, a.k.a., or that's the pen name for um, uh, the alias for Thomas Greer, watch his interview on 60 Minutes. And here he's telling Scott Pelley, like, yeah, man, it sucked. We wanted to go. They wouldn't let us go. We were going to kill them this way. We were going to kill them that way. We're going to take Chinooks and fly over the mountains and then come from the east and get them. Aha, what you going to do now, Osama? We are going to drop a bunch of mines. They only had three valleys to choose from to get out of there. We were going to mine them from the air. That'll slow them down. And then we'll be able to find them and shoot them and kill them. Let me at them, Uncle Scooby. These guys are the Delta Force. And I'm not saying like, oh, yeah put their lives at needless risk, but they weren't saying put my life at needless risk. They were saying, let me do my job, which yes, entails some risk, but I'm happy to do that. Being a Delta force guy after Osama bin Laden, you know, and as Greer says in that interview, he goes, goes, man, what, what target could possibly be more important for the war on terrorism than to get bin Laden? You can tell he's like essentially, you know, same with um, with um, with Bernson. They're like beside themselves that they can't get the authority to finish the job on that. In fact, you know, Greer says when you're Delta Force in the field, this is top tier, you know, them and SEAL Team 6 and, you know, 75th Rangers. These are the very top tier special operations forces. When Delta Force is in the field. And they radio back that they want permission to do this or that. The answer is always yes. And we're talking about on a tactical level, right? Not like we just made up a new mission for ourselves, but we want to go east and then north. The answer is always yes, right? And yet in this case, the answer was always no. And he's just like, look, I don't know what I don't know what to tell you. When you're in Delta Force, the answer is yes. We want to do this. Hey, you guys do your worst out there, buddy. That's always the answer. Except this one time. 
when it's killing Bin Laden and Zawahiri? And now the answer is, no, I'm so sorry. We're not going to be able to give you permission to do the thing that you want to do to kill these most killable men, you know? Yep. I mean, here's the thing, man. Like, everything was written down, man. If you look at just, if you just read the things that were written by, by PNAC and the neoconservatives, um, it's not like they were secretive about what they wanted and what their plans were and what they wanted to do with the Middle East and what their goals were uh, with the military and what they were trying to achieve. It's not it. They wrote it down. So it's not like people are making up some crazy conspiracy. So it's not a surprise they wanted to extend that war to Iraq. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right. And when you talk about, you know, the project for a new American century, that doctrine that they outlay, uh, outlay in rebuilding America's defenses, it's the same doctrine that they put in the defense planning guidance in 1992, which was the official Pentagon plan for American dominance. And then that became the national security strategy of the United States in 2002 under W. Bush. It became the official national security strategy. And you're right, you couldn't, they couldn't be more clear about it. The policy is complete and total American military dominance forever. And in order to keep the peace in the world, we are going to prevent any power or group of powers from ever even being able to consider the idea that they would challenge America's military dominance in their country, on their continent, in their region, their hemisphere, on Earth. That's it. We win. Don't even try it. And that's how we're going to lord it over everybody. And then so part of the Middle Eastern doctrine, if you exclude, you know, Likud party interests, for the moment, the American interest in dominating the Middle East, it's not so much about stealing that oil for the money, although Exxon and their friends get to make a pretty penny, but it's- Well, that's important because that's the left-wing narrative on it. On, that's, you know, the anti-war right. left in the early 2000s, that was the narrative. I think that's why so many people were turned off from it. Like, oh, well, you know, we could- it, War for shut oil, it's war not for, for oil. oil. So I think, <laughs> right. I think that messaging wasn't correct. But see, the thing of it is, like, it's a pretty powerful optical illusion. There's a hell of a lot of oil and a hell of a lot of money in that region. So the conflicts of interest are legion. But no, you're right. I mean, the reality is the primary reason for that war was because of the Likud party interests and therefore the neoconservatives interests in the United States to, you know, attempt to create a friendly situation that would guarantee Israeli dominance. But as far as the oil goes, it's not so much about stealing the money as it is about being able to lord it over East Asia, being able to lord it over our frenemies, the Chinese, the event, you know, as though the U.S. Navy can't just shut down all shipping anywhere in the world that they feel like anyway. But this is the thinking is that this is this important choke point. And so uh, in the event of a conflict with China, we can lord it over them. But even in peacetime. We can lord it over them, but also our friends, the Indians, the Koreans, the Japanese, the Australians, the Indonesians, all these people are running off of Middle Eastern oil. And so if we're the dominant force in the Middle East, that, you know, helps to prop up our policy of dominance throughout the world. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing that it's when they say full spectrum dominance, that's what they're talking about. They want the government in Turkmenistan to have to think, oh, well, what are the Americans going to say? 
about whatever it is that they do. Same thing in Outer Mongolia. Same thing everywhere, you know, with no exceptions. It's got to be, you know, every river and every stream and every, uh, you know, sea on the planet has to be considered American property and all the land in between. So um, I feel like uh, I feel like the U.S. would try to dominate the sun if we all started moving to like solar energy or something like that. Yeah, seriously. Um, or like the moon. Like you couldn't really count on these guys to say, hey, hey, hey like, let's all have really cool paper agreements to have like, you know, international control and no, you know, single nations, you know, claim on the moon. Um, I could see them fighting a war over it. I could see them fighting a war on the damn moon, trying to keep other nation states off of it or whatever, instead of figuring out a better way to work it out. And what a great way to waste money on that. You know what I mean? To Reminds me, reminds me of the show on Apple TV for all mankind. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, it's an alternate history show uh, where the Soviets beat us to the moon. And, oh, uh-huh. yeah, it's super interesting, very fascinating. I think you'd like it. But uh, you know, in the later seasons, they're all on the moon, and let's just say some conflict happens. Yeah, I <laughs> and bet. we shot first. <laughs> Spoiler right? alert. Yeah, always. Um, yeah, no. So, and then look, let's talk about the Israeli angle here. It's not a coincidence that the neoconservatives are all hardcore Zionists and they're not all Jewish, but they are all very, very Zionist. And their movement essentially comes from the radical left. Well, some were Trotskyite communists who then sided with America in the Cold War because they were Americans and because the Stalinists beat the Trotskyites for control of the USSR. So that was convenient for them. Um, But then they moved to the right because of Vietnam and civil rights. And they didn't want anything to do with the new left anti-war movement or the pro-black civil rights movement of the 1960s. So they started moving to the right. And they essentially, um, you know, the generation was shifting here too. But these, these are the people who populated the National Review and Commentary Magazine. And, um, you know, the... Uh, who studied under Leo Strauss and then um, went and worked for Scoop Jackson, in, uh, who was the senator from Boeing. They called him the senator from Washington State. And then they became Reaganites. And a bunch of them, you know, went to work for Ronald Reagan. And, you know, they moved, essentially moved to the right in the 1970s. And then so you have, you know, this major kind of uh, effort to ally with the military industrial complex and to take over the major foundations. So the Bradley, Olin, and Scaife foundations were really important. And in, I guess, the early 1990s, they founded the Weekly Standard magazine uh, to go along with the National Review. And, you know, essentially, so you have, um, by the time of the W. Bush years, well, by the time of the Bush senior years, these guys are, essentially excluded from Middle East policy. And Bush Sr. had, uh, uh, you know, uh, Brent Scowcroft, his national security advisor. His job is said to have been to keep the crazies in the basement, which meant that they're allowed to kill people in Latin America, but they're not allowed to mess with Middle Eastern policy, keep them away from Middle Eastern policy. So that's why you hear about Elliot Abrams and all these guys being caught up in Iran-Contra. It's because they were being kept away from Israel. Um, and Middle Eastern issues. But then, so W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld hire them all. 
So when you talk about rebuilding America's defenses, or you, you mentioned PNAC, and that was their big, you know, study that they put out. They had all these. It's open a very letters. creepy paper. Yeah, they have and some very creepy stuff about like uh, targeting uh, people by genome and stuff like that. It's very weird. Well, I mean, they're they're essentially bringing that up as a scare story of something we have to defend against. Yeah, is the context there? But it's you know they are they're throwing all the spaghetti at the wall to say you know this is why we need to increase American defense spending, and you know you could look at it as nothing but a brochure for Lockheed products. You know they made their uh, this massive alliance with Bruce Jackson from Lockheed, who also helped to finance the Weekly Standard and to help finance PNAC and and also the Committee for NATO Expansion and later the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq. And the guy was clearly just selling airplanes. I mean, the whole thing was just essentially a ruse from from their point of view. Um, But then there are some key members of the neoconservative movement in the 1990s, Richard Pearl and David Wormser and Douglas Fike who wrote this paper for Benjamin Netanyahu when he was first becoming the prime minister the first time in 1996. And it's called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And there's two follow-ups, Coping with Crumbling States and then the book Tyranny's Ally. And they all say the same thing, essentially. And the idea is this. And it's completely crazy. So if it sounds crazy to you, that's because it's crazy. Okay? It might even be a little confusing, but... Try to picture the map of the Middle East here and the way it's all set up. Their theory was, if we overthrow Saddam Hussein, then Jordan will take over Baghdad. And the king of Jordan, he's a Hashemite king, he will take over, or his cousin, um, they shifted the way that they talked about it, would become the king of, of the Iraqis. And it'd be great. Wait, it'd be th- that is just such an insane thing. The Shias don't even recognize the Heshemites as like as the um like stewards of Mecca like they are not that yeah but that's exactly Islam. the point between Sunni between the Sunnis and Shia had to do with the the lineage of Muhammad right but that's exactly but the how point. do they not know that well because or, or what they, they did was yeah no they knew it but they got it all mixed up right and, and what happened was it was Ahmed Chalabi who told them that yeah no see don't worry. The Shiites love bending over and taking orders from anyone who claims to have the blood of Muhammad. And Wormser didn't understand the difference that, no, the Shiites revere, you know, certain family lines for Muhammad, but not anyone who claims to be descended from Muhammad and certainly not the Hashemites. And in fact, when the Hashemite king had been foisted on them by the British um, in a previous era, the uh, Shiite clergy had issued a fatwa against him and forbidding any Iraqi from cooperating with the government and which helped lead to his downfall. So in other words, you are totally right to object right off the bat that, yeah, but Scott, in Iraq, the Shiites are the super majority. What's going to happen with that? Yeah, exactly. Except these guys are idiots, Henry. And so they, they didn't come up with that objection at all. Ahmed Chalabi said, don't worry. What will happen is the Shiites will do whatever they're told. And what we'll do then is, and here's where it gets, you know, really ridiculous. What we'll do is we'll have the, our new Hashemite king will instruct the Shiite clergy in Najaf to instruct Hezbollah in Lebanon to stop being friends with Iran, to start being friends with Israel. And then Turkey and Jordan and Israel will be dominant and Syria and Hezbollah will be tamed 
and Syria will be left out in the cold and Iran isolated on the far eastern periphery of the region there. Now, this is completely stupid and crazy and wrong, but this is what these extremely important neoconservatives have let themselves uh, let themselves be convinced of by Chalabi. So obviously Bush wanted to do it, right? Rumsfeld wanted to do it. Cheney wanted to do it. But then they all turned to Wolfowitz and Wolfowitz says, yeah, we game this out. It's going to be great. You know, like trust us eggheads. You know, we already went through how it's going to shake out in the new Iraqi order and it's going to be wonderful. You know, we got it all figured out. So Bush didn't trouble himself with these kinds of questions. That's what neocons are for, you know, and then but they are complete idiots. And the idea was that they're so smart. Oh, Paul Wolfowitz. Why? One time he predicted that Saddam Hussein would do something that Saddam Hussein did which I think would have been his invasion of Iran, which America gave him the green light to do. So yeah, big prediction, dude. Um, but wow, what a brilliant genius. That means we got to let this guy decide whatever he wants. He's really, he's so damn smart. And then you guys know how that is from your, you know, dealing with people in your real life that anybody who's that smart is not that smart. And they're always going to be overlooking something. And you could have, you know, a real dummy who's got, some real compelling wisdom on really important things. And a guy like Paul Wolfowitz is the kind of guy who would make the worst decisions in American foreign policy history, right? In terms of even from the empire's own point of view of what they were trying to accomplish. He ran the car into the ditch. The guy's a complete, you know, failure and loser. But they looked at him and said, wow, well, you know, if you guys say so, then this is going to be great. Let's do it. And then, of course, it didn't work out like that at all. What happened instead was that Bush put Iran's best friends in power. It was the Shiites, all right. They weren't taking orders. I mean, in fact, let me ask you, have you ever heard anything about the history of Iraq War II where the Jordanians were dominant or even had a say at all in anything that happened in Iraq War II, right? Nothing. They had no influence whatsoever. And, and look, it was Ahmed Chalabi who was working for himself first and Iran second and who conned these guys. And I have the quote in the book where he says, look, I just had to tell these guys what they needed to hear to get the war. Don't worry about me. I'm with you guys still. You know, that was him talking to his friends, you know, like, don't worry, I'm just manipulating these idiots. And so that's how it happened. And then that's, see, this explains then the rest of American policy in the Middle East since then too. Because if what Bush did by invading that country, starting that war, was put Iran's best friends in power, where they remain to this day, well, then shit. That's not what they wanted to happen. So now what are they going to do? So then that explains why they're back on the side of the terrorists, as I explained earlier, where, you know, most of the time they're on the same side as the bin Ladenites nowadays. Well, that's why. They're trying to get revenge against the Shiites because they're mad that they fought Iraq War II for them. And so they keep, and of course, every time they do this, like in Syria, <clears throat> they started the covert war against Assad to try to weaken Iran. Yeah, don't you think, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg says to Obama, don't you think if we get rid of Assad in Damascus that that'll help bring Iran down a peg? And Obama says, absolutely. Okay, but then what happened? Damascus is more dependent on Iran than ever before. Iran has more influence inside Syria than ever before. They're closer to Hezbollah, who are more battle-hardened and experienced than ever before. And so 
you know, and the same thing in um, in uh, the war in Yemen, where when the Houthis came to power, they knew that they were a small minority and they were going to have to share power with everybody else. And they were already talking about coming up with pretty elaborate power sharing arrangements under the new constitution. Then America started bombing them. And then and that was six and a half years ago. We're still bombing them. Not quite six and a half, six and a quarter years ago. We're still bombing them. They're still in power in the capital city. And I guarantee you, however this war, you know, shakes out in the end, the Houthis are going to be that much less likely to share power with other people and are now, you know, closer to Iran than ever before. You know, it wasn't until 2000, I think 19, it could have been 18, but still that would have been three years into the war. I think it was in 19. I think it was four years into the war was when the head Houthi, I forgot his name, actually traveled to Tehran and met with the Ayatollah and the Ayatollah recognized his government as the official government of Yemen. Well, hell, they seized the capital city at the end of 2014. They'd been, pardon me, Dr. Pepper, they'd been the government of Yemen for years at that point before the Ayatollah finally said, okay, I recognize you as the official government of Yemen. So the thing in Iraq, you know, again, why they do Iraq? Because it was supposed to help split Hezbollah away from Iran. It was supposed to weaken Iran. David Wormser also wrote that once the Iraqi Shiites are under America's control, then we're going to use them to lord it over Iran. And the Iraqi Shiites are going to have it so good that they're going to put pressure on the Iranians to rise up and overthrow their government, create a new pro-American government in Iran, too. So we won't even have to go to war with Iran because we're going to have so much more advanced influence over their country. Um, so Iraq and Syria and Yemen, all three, in a sense, fought to limit Iran's power. All three have enhanced it. And then same thing, of course, for fighting for the Hazaras against the Taliban for the last 20 years in Afghanistan, too. Those are Iran's friends there. Something I never really understood is how did, didn't the CIA, when they came in contact with Chalabi, like he had a history of being like a criminal fraudster, like prior. Right. And when they were they working with him. They had a burn notice on him. Yeah. They, Weren't they, they saying that he was just creating the he, they, there was a failed coup or failed like Kurdish uprising in 1995 where Chalabi had kind of double crossed the CIA. That guy, Robert Baer, was involved in it. And essentially they tried to launch the war and kind of force America to back them up in a bad pig style kind of thing. And it didn't work. And I'm not exactly sure what all happened there, but I know it failed. And the CIA put a burn notice on Chalabi after that. Like he was. I actually have the quote for him. I have a quote from Robert Baer right now. It was something like a spy novel. It was a room where people were scanning Iraqi intelligence documents into computers and doing disinformation. There was a whole wing of it that he did forgeries in. He was forging back then in order to bring down Saddam. Mm -hmm. And then the so quality of the I oh sorry Scott. No 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 go ahead. Yeah, the quality of the INC's intelligence was very bad. There was a feeling that Child B was uh, was prepping defectors. We had no uh, systematic way to vet the information, but it was obviously most of it was cooked. Yeah. Now, the thing is, too, is Bob Bear is not a trustworthy guy at all, but I think he's right about this stuff. And, um, you know, so the CIA had a burn notice on it, but the Pentagon neocons hired him. That was what happened in 2002 was he just went to work for the Pentagon and they paid him instead. And then, you know, the CIA, I don't think really laundered too many of his lies. 
See, well, that's not really right. So Curveball was the Iraqi defector who talked to the Germans and claimed that they had these biological weapons labs and all of that. And they play down the connection there, but there is a connection there. He was the cousin of a guy that worked for Chalabi in the office there. So they claim that that wasn't an INC defector, but seems like it really was. Uh, but for the most part, I think the CIA mostly ignored Chalabi's stuff, but the neocons didn't. They took it all and they had their own little intelligence office in the Pentagon called the Office of Special Plans, where they would go through the CIA's trash and or whatever the INC was giving them and turn all that intelligence so-called into talking point format and funnel it straight to the media and straight to the president and the vice president's office. And so, um, you know, the CIA, they were willing to torture people into lying about Iraq. So don't get me wrong, but there was just a certain subset of lies that they weren't really involved in. And that was, that was the Chalabi stuff that was coming, you know, basically through the Pentagon. And then, you know, I know you guys are younger than me and there are people listening who are probably even younger than you who just don't even remember this time at all. But, oh, my God, the level of BS. I mean, talk about hitting you over the head with things that ain't true that you have to believe or else. And the level of sanctimony behind all of this is just otherworldly and unbelievable and unforgettable or forgivable the way that they did this. And they had it where you know, people's families broke up over this stuff. You know, neighbors shot each other over this stuff. And people, um, you know, it was crazy the way, because think of it like this, the way that they set it up was that half the country believing that the other half of the country didn't want to defend America against the people who'd attacked us. You know, I can't believe you don't think we should do anything to Iraq. After Saddam Hussein attacked us on 9-11. Like what kind of commie, hippie, homo, traitor are you? That you hate America so much that you don't think we even have the right to defend ourselves when somebody kills 3,000 of us. You traitor, commie, homo, hippie, whatever, whatever. Then the other half of America is going, no, you idiot. That wasn't Saddam that did that. But you see how there's no middle ground there. Right. Like it's a this false is choice just, for sure. Yeah. yeah. The level of vitriol here was just it was unbelievable, you know. Um, and and then, of course, once the torture regime was all revealed, then Bush said, you're damn right. We torture people. Not that we torture people. It didn't torture anything. But you're damn right. We do. Don't we, everybody? And demanded that the American right wing take his side on torture. This is what it means to be an American conservative and a Christian. In fact, the polls showed the more Christian you are, the more church you go to, Catholic or Protestant, the more you support torture, because that's what George W. Bush wants. You know, speaking of the son of God, right? The son of H.W. Bush says we got to torture people, including to death. And if we do, then that's just fine. That's patriotism. That's, you know, protecting America. And it's, it's probably hard for people who were too young to, you know, remember how it was then to even imagine the level of sanctimony behind this garbage, this absolute garbage. I mean, you got articles this week, you know, with the fall of the regime in Afghanistan. You have kind of in the 20 years since September 11th, you have these kind of retrospective pieces where Bush administration people are now saying, yeah, OK, we shouldn't have done Iraq. That was everybody's fault but mine. Right. Like John Negroponte and some of these others. 
I knew better. I knew we shouldn't do it, but they wanted to do it anyway. And where, but so in other words, so you got people in the W Bush years who were, you know, in the Bush government then who in 2021 will say, yeah, no, that was a mistake. A mistake, man, of all of the unforced premeditated murder plots that went awry. This was one of them, man. This is like on the level of Japan attacking America. Bad idea, dude. What the hell do you guys think you're doing? You don't start wars. Who told you it was okay to start a war? And they did. And they beat everybody over the head with, oh, the terrorists are going to get you if you won't let us defend you. And, you know, here's the part. I always say, I think I probably piss people off with this sometimes. But I always bring up they're trying to keep your mama afraid. But the thing is, it's not like I'm just trying to get you mad, like in defense of your mama kind of emotional button push type thing. It's that that's true, right? Like they weren't saying. It, it wasn't like some elite thing, right? They were trying to build up a mass movement of support for starting this war. They needed for everyone in your neighborhood including the little old lady who doesn't know about political stuff and never messes with stuff like this. And you need your mom. They needed the head of the local PTA and your gym coach and your minister and your, the, the population of your little culture in your little suburb where you're from you to keep everybody terrified so that they could get away with starting this war. And they knew they were lying. They knew they were manipulating people. And you had people who were kind of on the edge of mental illness who W. Bush pushed them right off the cliff. You know, there were a million killed, but I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of lives ruined by Iraq War II. But then pushing those lies on the American people so they could start that war. And obviously the Iraqis got the brunt of it. But you know what? Millions of Americans went to that war and back. And same for Afghanistan. Got a lot of guys who went over there, participated in this stuff, and then were yanked right back out again. Who, well, their lives would be different and better if it hadn't have been that way, you know? And never had to be this way at all. It's crazy. It's completely crazy. I remember telling my then seven-year-old nephew, hey, look, I'm not going to tell you all about it. Never mind. But I just want you to know that your Uncle Scott's against this war. You don't start a war, ever. That's just wrong in the face of it. And that's all I have to say to you about it. You're just a little kid. But I want you to remember this, that there were people who knew better and said so at the time. You don't do this. And then now look at us. That was 20 years ago. That was 18 years ago. And look at us. Everybody knows now that antiwar.com was right all along. You know, well, what does that tell you? Antiwar.com was right all along. The Hawks were wrong all along. Not just in starting the wars, but all the surges and all the, you know, humanitarian interventions and all the CIA ops. None of it had to happen. You know, I quote in Fool's Errand, Anthony Zinni, and Gary Bernson. So uh, Zinni was the former commander of CENTCOM. Bernson was the former CIA officer in charge at Tora Bora. And both of them told Michael Hirsch in 2016 that, yeah, you know, 
It sucks, but really, the whole war could have been over by Christmas 2001. We really didn't have to have a war on terrorism at all. Certainly not a generation of it. Certainly not an era of it. Could have killed Bin Laden at Tora Bora and been home in time for stockings on the 25th. And that could have been the end of that. And that's even, you know, never mind trying to negotiate extradition of the guy, but just even assuming that you needed a violent response to the attack at all. It could have been over by Christmas. Yeah, the New York Times just uh, two weeks ago, right as, um, you know, the anniversary of September 11th is, is happening and, and the Taliban are uh, taking back over Kabul. And the New York Times ran a piece about, yeah, it's true, Mullah Omar tried to surrender to the United States. At the end of November, 01, he tried to surrender. And Donald Rumsfeld told him to go to hell. We're not accepting surrenders right now. Okay, so in other words, that's the that's finally now in the official paper of record after it's all over and it's all too late in 2021 and a half. The newspaper of record, the New York Times says, oh, yeah, you know what? I guess Horton was right. We have to do well, let's, let's talk about the New York Times, because the New York Times is one of the key media outlets that really sold the public to the war specifically i mean everyone was doing it but i mean the new york times is like the left-leaning paper of record that you can rely on i mean if they're saying that saddam has weapons if judith miller is saying that saddam has uh, chemical weapons then you know it must really be true and the whole conspiracy because i i think it was a conspiracy they conspired to do this of how you know they were working with judith miller uh, essentially, they were working with Judith Miller and Colin Powell was going on Fox and, you know, quoting um, Judith Miller articles um, and citing them as evidence. And it basically just became a giant circle jerk. Like, can you can you kind of help explain that, like the role sure. of The New York Times in the media and how neoconservatives were using these media media outlets to to, uh, you know, sell people on this war? Yeah. Well, um, you know, Michael Gordon stayed her partner on all those stories, got to stay at the Times for years. He's at the Wall Street Journal now. But, you know, he's the same guy who led the propaganda campaign accusing Iran of being behind all the roadside bombs in 2011. The same guy who had lied, or pardon me, 2007. The same guy who had lied us into war with Judy Miller. And you're absolutely right. So famously, and they did this over and over again. But the biggest one was Saddam Hussein continues quest for A-bomb parts. And it's by Miller and Gordon. And it's uh, it cites the centrifuges. I forget if it cites the Africa. I think it's um, it cites the uh, seizure of the aluminum tubes that supposedly could be used for centrifuges, which was nonsense. I, I mistakenly identified them as centrifuges a second ago. I shouldn't have said that. They're aluminum tubes that the completely ridiculous false accusation was that these are not for rockets. They're for centrifuges. So they ran that story, but it was. Uh, the vice president's office had placed the story in there. It was Scooter Libby, I believe it was. I, I forgot how we know that, but um, who had specifically put the story in the paper. And then the next day, Dick Cheney, is it like the Sunday morning, you know, um, above the fold top story? And then Dick Cheney goes on Meet the Press with Tim Russert and says, well, Tim, there's a story in the New York Times today that says that Saddam is increasing his quest for A-bomb parts. And so this is, we've got to take this really seriously. And he's pretending that he found out from the newspaper when he's the one who put the story in the newspaper. And then the newspaper says, 
The source is a former congressional aide. Wait a minute. Former congressional aide. In other words, it's Scooter Libby, special advisor to the president of the United States, who, uh, oh, yeah, is a former congressional aide, you know, um, totally misleading kind of uh, identification of the source of the story there when it came straight out of the vice president's office. And then and then they did that and they repeated that. And the aluminum tube story was the main story that they used to drum up the accusation that Saddam is seeking nuclear weapons. He's going to make nuclear weapons. He's reconstituted his nuclear weapons program or even nuclear weapons themselves, to Cheney said, and over and over again, based on this lie about these aluminum tubes. And then that was when they, um, you know, came up with this line. It was the White House Iraq group led by Carl uh, Rove in the White House came up. They they were in charge of coming up with like the memes and the talking points and stuff. And um, they said, and they had George Bush, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, and Dick Cheney, and I might be forgetting one, but certainly all of them use the exact same line on TV. Well, you know, we can't wait for the proof, the final evidence that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud over an American city. So, I mean, just think about the level of obvious and blatant dishonesty there. Oh, I can prove there's a danger to you, but if I wait long enough to gather enough proof to make you really believe me, then, you know, your whole city could get nuked and you and your mom are going to die in your jammies in the middle of the night if you make me prove it to you. I mean, Was that, that a Frank Luntz line? I'm sorry? A, a Frank Luntz line? I don't know about if he had any say in that, or that at was, all or not. Or that's smoking gun, Frank Luntz. Yeah, that I might mean, be confusing. Yeah, he's, I don't, I don't know if he was a direct consultant for the White House or Rat Group or not. I would have to go back and look at that. But if Carl Rowe was bouncing this stuff off of him at the time, that would not surprise me one bit. And you guys, I actually saw this. I remember seeing this live on TV at the time when it happened. Um, you guys may have heard of this, where in August of 2002, it was after the VFW speech, uh, where Cheney just got up there and lied to all the veterans of the foreign war specifically, um, you know, who are going to, the guys who are going to send their sons to the next one. Um, and someone asked him, so are we really getting going on pushing for the Iraq war now? And Card says, well, from a marketing point of view, you want to, you don't want to debut new products in August. You want to wait till after Labor Day. And so then like that was the way that they talked about it. It was a marketing campaign to like make new you iPhones. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, it was that was how well thought out it was. That like we've got to make people terrified. And then also meant torturing absolute ridiculous lies about upcoming terrorist attacks out of innocent people or even guilty people. But my colleague Sheikh Mohammed, they were torturing the hell out of this guy through 2002 and he's coming up with all of these scare stories that oh yeah there could be a target there could there could be an attack on a bank somewhere in new york or new jersey so oh my god orange alert all banks in new york and new jersey call out your extra security call out your local police forces and your swat teams and your riot police and your extra stormtrooper squads everybody stand around dressed up in your like science fiction, total recall, police state gear. And then there's no threat to a bank. I'll remember this one, man. I, I'll never forget this one. I was driving in Austin and the top of the hour news says, 
the orange alert. Uh, this come in, a, a new terrorist threat has come in. A school somewhere in Texas could be attacked by Al-Qaeda. A school in Texas. So this, there's like 50,000 schools in Texas, yeah, right? Yeah, that's how you've ever been to Texas. Yeah, there's like, you know, I, I lost count, but something like eight or ten major cities in this state. And then with, with you know, literally something like five or six or eight thousand towns. Right. I mean, thousands of towns of, uh, you know, hundreds of counties. I forgot how many exactly, but I, I'm pretty sure there's more than 200 counties in Texas. Oh, a school somewhere in Texas might get blown up today. You know, so if you're a parent in Texas, you're a little bit more for attacking Iraq today. You know, that's essentially how that worked. And, you know, how yeah. would they even pull that off? How would they? It's even the most be- cynical thing. It's the most cynical thing. And especially, how did W. Bush pull that off? You know, and, and I guess the real answer is the media. The media, you know, back to the thing about the New York Times. Like, hey, if even the liberal New York Times says that this is all legit and above board and everybody knows it's true, then how can you argue with that? You know, if everybody, you know, the way I remember it, and I'm right about everything, is that. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. If you had a problem with the Bush government on anything, you're the jerk. How dare you? These men are doing everything they can to protect our country against the terrorist Islamist threat of the terrorism and the thing. And that didn't change at all. There wasn't even a crack in that shield until Hurricane Katrina drowned New Orleans. And then at that point, this is something where you don't have to care about the news. You don't have to care about the world or foreign policy. You don't have to know any Arabic names. You don't have to care about anything. You just be a complete regular person. Cares nothing about nothing about nothing but baseball and shoelaces. And then, but oh my God, New Orleans is drowning on TV. Everybody's watching that. And then everybody's watching the national government do nothing for six days. And it's like, wait a minute. It's fucking Thursday. Where are they? They're not coming at all. Nobody's coming. And the National Guard, the Louisiana National Guard, was in Iraq. And and the neighboring state guards, they were in Iraq. And then the feds weren't coming. They just weren't coming. The only thing they were doing was turning people away who were trying to help. 
Walmart came with 18 wheelers full of bottles of water. They were turned away at gunpoint. The Alabama bass fishermen's uh, fishermen's uh, uh, flat bottom boat bass fishermen's association came. These little aluminum boats that ride like this deep in the water, right? And they can go anywhere. And these are all good old boys. They got guns if they need one. And they're not allowed to go and try to rescue people. They're turned away at gunpoint while a thousand people drown more. And then finally, there's, you know, um, Anderson Cooper on CNN live crying like a girl. And finally, like the dam breaks, proverbially. Finally, actually, you know what? Maybe George W. Bush, George W. Bush possibly is not the most competent administrator in world history. For me, it was uh, for me, it was Kanye saying George Bush don't care about black people. Yeah. Look, September 11th happened on his watch. He'd been president for eight months. In fact, he benefited from the fact that he's such an idiot and such a loser and such a nobody that for the American people who didn't understand that, boy, there's a war coming. He might as well not even been president. So when the attack came, instead of holding him responsible, they held him totally not responsible. Right. They're like, oh, come on. He's George Bush's retarded son. He doesn't know. You know, people didn't even, I mean, think about it. Like if it had been Al Gore, people would have said, God damn, Al Gore, you've been vice president for eight years and president for eight months. You couldn't have done nothing to stop that thing from happening. But W. Bush was such an idiot that people just gave him the benefit of the doubt. They're like, ah, come on. What could he have possibly understood enough to do anything about he didn't this? Didn't mean any harm, you know? Yeah, poor guy. I would have a beer with him, you know. That's what I yeah. would hear. I would have a beer with GW. Yeah. So I mean, I think that helped him. The fact that he was such an idiot, it became an excuse for him. Um, but then at the same time, he somehow was endowed with superhuman, you know, semi-deity-like powers of of control and and you know, first of all, benevolence. But second of all, competence, you know, as Abby Hall would say, you know, these these huge assumptions that this guy, one, has the right idea in mind or even means well at all, rather than cares about himself and is going to get away with bloody murder now because he has the opportunity to. But then second of all, that he has the first clue of how to do anything. And again, you know, for people who were old enough at the time, you know, the narrative was. Hey, the U.S. Army is real tough, okay? The U.S. Army can kick your ass. The U.S. Army can do anything. You're telling me you think some Arabs can stand up against the force of the U.S. Army? And that was certainly what W. Bush thought. You know, famously, he was quoted, he said this was his only regret of his presidency, was that he had turned to the camera and said, well, people concerned about the, the security situation there in Iraq. I say, bring them on. We're not worried about that. We can take them. We can do it. Right. And then he felt bad about that because there were families of dead GIs who said to him, I can't believe you said that, you son of a bitch. You said, bring them on. And then my son got shot, jerk. And then he went, oh, man, I, yeah, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have said that. But the point being, what was he thinking when he said that? What he was thinking when he said that was, he was picturing the jolly green giant, right? You can't mess with this. 
This is the U.S. Army, this force, this, you know, unstoppable juggernaut. When, no, it's not, man. It's 20-year-old boys standing around with rifles, getting shot at, getting their legs and nuts blown off, you know? But he didn't understand that. He looked at it in the same way as the propaganda campaign had it, that USA, number one, we can do anything, which is also strange because you're supposed to be cowering in terror under your kitchen table that the terrorists are going to blow you up at any second now. But that's just, I guess, why we got to take our superpower status and go and smash them and protect us. And then, you know, so it goes. They just, you know, round and round and around. Cognitive dissonance, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I can't tell you how many guys have told me they went and joined the military after September 11th, like on the 12th. They are on the 13th because they had to go kiss their mama goodbye. And then they went and joined the army. And I'm going, man, did you think we didn't have a standing army? Like, did you think we didn't have the forces available to invade Afghanistan? To take on a few hundred bandits? The world empire. The world superpower. We have a million man army. Thank you very much. But people just had no, that's how disconnected people are. You know, they're like, oh my God, Uncle Sam needs my help. Come on. Really? And then what happened? All those guys who thought they were going to Al-Qaeda to fight legions of, I don't know, millions of Al-Qaeda guys or whatever it was they thought they were getting, they all got sent to Iraq instead. There were only a few hundred Al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan, and we let them get away in December 01. The new recruits weren't out of basic training yet before the war on terrorism was over and the war for terrorism had begun. These guys were going to use them to do whatever they wanted. You know, that was the story of um, of uh, Pat Tillman, who joined all ideal, ideal, uh, idealistically after September 11th, renounced his millions of dollar uh, football contract, went and joined the Green Berets or the Rangers, I guess. Um, and then went to Iraq and was like, what the hell? What does this have to do with anything? I'm being used and abused. Me and my guys were being lied to. And then he got sent to Afghanistan where he died, I guess in an accident, of friendly fire where he's shot at by his own guys. And then what do they do? And let's just presume that really was an accident and not a coincidence that this guy who had started emailing back and forth with Noam Chomsky about how anti-war he was, was just accidentally killed. Then they covered all that up. And they made him the poster boy. And they said that he died fighting terrorists and all this stuff and used him to recruit a bunch more guys, you know, based on the same kind of lies. And they made such a big deal about the fact that he'd been killed in Afghanistan. It made it sound like we were at war in Afghanistan, you know? I mean, at that point, there was nobody left to fight. It's just our guys scouting around in the mountains shooting each other. Yeah, I remember that when he, when he died or when he died, it was presented this brave patriot gave up like just so selfless and sacrificing himself for his country. And then comes out that he was actually against these wars and he had become disenfranchised with it. That had to be a big turning point for a lot of people. And yeah, I've heard, I've, I've heard that, that, uh, theory that he may have been assassinated. I'm not not so sure of that. I mean, it's close enough to work these guys, you know, I don't know. But they should lied about it. You know, they lied to his mom about it, you know? 
You don't lie to the mom. <laughs> yeah, they but lied to his mom and dad. Level of fucked up. You know, yeah. Your son was a hero. Your son died fighting evil terrorists. We're going to use him as our poster boy for recruiting more boys to go and do the same thing. When then it turned so, out that that wasn't true at all. You know? Before 9-11, my only knowledge of... I'm, I was 11 years old when 9-11 happened. So I was a perfect age for, to be propagandized, just old enough to kind of understand what was going on and have some understanding of what a Muslim was, but very little. My real only not my only knowledge was of uh, the Middle East was the movie Hot Shot Parts Two <laughs> with Charlie Sheen. And like it's a it's a uh, a parody on Rambo where Saddam Hussein is the villain and he's just an idiot. He's just a dumb idiot. And that was my only reference on the Middle East until 9-11. And then all this happens. And then everyone becomes one person. Like there was a conflation between, you know, Saddam Hussein, the secular dictator, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. All these groups just became the Muslims. Yep. And I think that's where, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, you know, your your debate with um, Ali, Hersey Ali. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I'm butchering her name. Um, I think it's Hersi Ali. But this clash of civilizations, I mean, they really believe it because they conflate all these people together. Like they're right. all just the Muslims. Yeah, exactly right. And then look how easy that is, right? You take a group of 400 guys, get to speak for a billion and a half people. You know, look at, um, and this came up in that debate too with Hersi Ali that, the guy that was nominally on her side, although he kind of hung her out to dry um, and didn't do much, you know, taking her side in the thing. Um, I think one he knew that he was brought sinking up, ship. He yeah, knew yeah, exactly. sinking ship. I think I got this book. The missing, yeah, it, the, the guy recommended the book, The Missing Martyrs. And it's about how even at the height of the Islamic State, you only had about 50,000 guys. And a lot of those were conscripts, just local Iraqi Sunni conscripts. So where are all the terrorists, man? Out of 1.8 billion Muslims, you can't get more than a couple of tens of thousands to join the caliphate at the height of the Islamic State. No, obviously they don't believe in that shit. Sorry for your narrative, but where are all the terrorists? Even as America's killing 2 million people. You know, so it's a million Iraqis. You want to add in the Libyans? And the Syrians and the Afghans and the Pakistanis and the Somalis and the Yemenis who've died. We're talking over a couple of million people. And yet look how hard it is to get people to join a volunteer armed force like that. You know, a a stateless group of bandits like that. It's just it's a very difficult project to sustain, you know, joining a government's military. Well, that's easy. Three hots and a cot and a pair of boots and a rifle and orders and stuff. But you just can't get people to join Al-Qaeda. You know, even after all this time. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show, again, it didn't have to be this way at all. And, you know, it's important part of the story that, look, bin Laden wanted us out of the way so he could overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia. But he couldn't overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia anyway. If America had gotten out of his way, he still couldn't do it. If America had gotten out of his way, Zawahiri couldn't overthrow Mubarak. These terrorists, these Al-Qaeda guys were in no position to wage a single revolution. 
it took W. Bush's war in Iraq and Obama's war in Syria to create the caliphate for them. Before that, there are all secular dictators in the way. There's all sovereign nation states in the way, no caliphate. And so you're right, that was the lie. But look at what a damn dirty lie it was. There's just no truth to it at all. You know? Well, I was disappointed to see Tulsi Gabbard, like her mm-hmm. uh, 9-11 home. I, did you see that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he, yeah, she like, always does that stuff. And, you know, I sent her the book and I got a nice postcard back. That Thanks for the book. I can't wait to read it. So she at least ought to know better. And look, you know, and I talk about her in the book that she um, was in Iraq War II, stationed at the Balad Air Base north of Baghdad, which had mortars coming over the walls. And she had, you know, bleeding, screaming, dying young Americans. You know, she's part of a medical unit. I was treating, you know, guys who just gotten blown up a minute ago. So she went through all kinds of, I don't know exactly what, but she had a hell of a battlefield experience over there. They, they qualify her as a combat vet, not that she was ever pulling triggers in combat, but she had to drive that highway between Baghdad and the base, and she was getting mortared at that base with the rest of them. So... It ain't the same as being stateside, that's for sure. Um, and this is why she was good on Syria. Because Obama was asking us to take the side of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. And she was going, I'm sorry, man. I, I know who are the shirts and who are the skins in this game. And I'm not siding with the bin Ladenites. Are you crazy? And so, fair enough. You know, but... At the same time, you got to recognize that. So at that point, she's like, you know, at least one solid click better than absolutely crazy, batshit, insane, high treason back in Al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. So in other words, you don't really have to be good. You just have to be human. You know, you just have to be not Benedict Arnold, not Barack Obama to agree with her on Syria. Right. But there's room enough in her argument to wage war against terrorism broadly defined forever. And she said, you know, in one of her campaign ads that she put out on Twitter last year, she goes, listen, the war in Al-Qaeda is not over. She goes, there are terrorists in the Idlib province in Syria. There are terrorists in Yemen, which in both cases, America backs Al-Qaeda's side there. But anyway, and then she goes, and there's Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Well, okay, but like now we're defining Al-Qaeda very broadly when Al-Shabaab is really a a local nuisance. Yeah, and their most ambitious leader, Godain, was killed back in 2014. I mean, they're just really, they are Saudi money recipients. They are not truly international terrorists. Um, So she goes, so there's AQ in Idlib and in uh, Yemen and in uh, Somalia. There are hundreds of these groups around the region that we have to fight. These bin Ladenite terrorists, she says. And it's just like, what are you talking about? How do you go from one to two where we're on their side to three where now you're really stretching to even define them as Al-Qaeda at all to then 97 or even 197 more groups than that? Minimum 200 if you want to say hundreds. You know, no, there's not. It's just a stupid lie. It's completely ridiculous. 
And there are people who say, well, yeah, that's because she's a Hindu nationalist. I don't know. She she certainly believes a load of crap about this and repeats it constantly. When the reality is most Salafists and Wahhabists stay home. They don't do anything. I mean, there are millions of Salafists and Wahhabists. These are like the more fundamentalist and radical edge of Sunni Islam. They all stay home. They go to work and then they come home. They don't blow up anybody. They're not really political at all. They're quietists. They believe in a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. That doesn't mean they're willing to join an army to kill others to die for it. You know, it's just not true. So who the hell is she lying to anyway? And who's she trying to impress with this crap anyway? I mean, well, in fact, that's the thing is I think she believes it, but I'm kind of ashamed of her for that because it's completely stupid and she should know better, you know? Well, what do you think of like the reaction right now from, um, so you've been on Fox news lately, um, on, on Kennedy's show. Um, so I, the right wing is kind of like, I'm disappointed, but I do think they've made progress, but not enough progress. Like if you watch Tucker, Tucker Carlson, um, the, the day that Kabul falls, he has, I think his first guest was Andrew Basevich. The day no, that Kabul fell, really? Andrew Basevich and then Douglas McGregor were his first two guests. And I think maybe Glenn Grenwall was on the show later. Great. But it was like, yeah, I should have seen that. Like a really good lineup. And then a couple of days ago, um, like a couple of days after that, he had uh, Danny Davis on it. He had all these great um, right wing, like ex military guys, like the type of guys that can speak to the right wing and say, hey, these right. wars are stupid. Like they're not having some hippity dippity uh, person who's going to turn people off. Um, so in that regard, I mean, you may have saw. I think did you see this guy Joe Kent? Uh, yes, congressman out of Washington. I did see that interview, and that was so impressive, man. I sent him the book. I can't wait to find out what he thinks of the thing if he reads it. You know, I think I sent him both books, probably. Yeah, I mean, try calling that guy a pussy, man. Like that guy is a right winger. He just knows that these wars are dumb. Um, but all right, once even 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 though Tucker's good on like the Middle Eastern wars or Afghanistan, he still sucks in a lot of stuff. Like I don't want right. to give him too much credit. Um, but after that, Sean Hannity comes on, and what Sean Hannity has is a he literally has a clock, um, like a like a day counter, like the Iranian hostage crisis. Uh huh. It is just the most ridiculous things. Like it's it's now day fourteen of Americans stranded in Afghanistan. It's now uh, it's now day fifteen. So That's part funny. of it is just completely fell and had been dumbed down by just standard partisan by politics Hannity. from the yeah. Well, oh, you know, and I heard it's, that it's um, that Trump went on Hannity's show and then blamed it on Bush. You know, he could have taken a cheap shot. Dave was talking about this. He could have taken a cheap shot and just blamed it all on Biden. But he goes, you know, W. Bush, this is all his fault. He never should have done this. And what I didn't ask Dave, which I should have asked Dave, was what does Sean Hannity say about that? I mean, Sean Hannity was just the mouth of Sauron back then. He was just absolutely the worst. You know, that hour of him every single night shouting down everyone who knew better, accusing them all of siding with terrorists and hating America and all the, you know, him and Bill O'Reilly, the two of them. They were as bad as Dick Cheney. They're as bad as Bill Kristol or anybody else who worked to get us into that war. 
to propagandize for that war. And, you know, I know the guy ain't sorry, but, um, you know, has he learned a lesson at all from that? That, like, he was so certain, my God, man. And, like, again, for the young people who don't remember, the way it was was Hannity wasn't just Hannity. Hannity was half of Hannity and Combs. Oh, my. Alan yeah. Combs from New York, um, who I swear to God, I had no idea. I wish I'd put two and two together on this and figured this out. But for Public Enemy fans on Black Planet, where they do the radio show, Incident at 66.6 FM, that's Alan Combs. He's going, well, geez, Chuck, if you heard all the stuff they were saying about you, whatever, that was, that was Alan Combs. Anyway, so the way the script worked was Alan Combs would go, well, geez, Sean, I agree with you about the terrible, dangerous threat, but I just think we shouldn't do anything about it because I'm afraid. And then Hannity would go, that's right, because you liberals are weaklings and cowards, but you concede our entire point that something must be done and we're going to do it. And so screw you. And then on to the next one. And then they just do it over and over and over again. And that was Combs' only role, basically, was to be a bowling pin for Hannity to knock down, you know, night after night after night after night. And that worked. I mean, that worked. Dude. That, you know, without him. I bet you could notch them percentage points for support for all this stuff down by eight. You know, like that guy was a force to be reckoned with him and Bill O'Reilly both. And they had the entire rest of TV media terrified that he was leaving them in the dust with his hawkishness. They needed to be more like that, you know, and I'm, I'm proud of Tucker Carlson for getting it right now. He was horrible back then. And I think he really resents the people who lied to him and he resents himself like regrets that he had been so bad on that stuff. And I don't know if he ever really said he was sorry and like came totally clean about it, but I think he clearly made a decision that screw these neocons, man. I think maybe his change might've come with Ron Paul in 08. That just, you'd have to be a fool to believe in this stuff anymore. Come on. And, you know, I think he really has gotten much, much better on foreign policy since then. And I think it's personal. I think he put faith in these guys. Okay, you guys say you gotta do this, fine. And then it was a disaster, you know, and I think he, you know, Carlson certainly is a much more thoughtful person than O'Reilly or Hannity at all. So I think, you know, he must have been sitting by himself eating dinner one night and thought, man, I can't believe what those guys are going through over there. You know what I mean? It mattered to him in a way other than just cashing his checks and having a TV persona and all of this stuff the way Hannity is. But I got to wonder about the people who watched Carlson and then watch Hannity like can't they tell <laughs> the difference in the substance yeah. here you know I I don't know I don't I think they're just geared towards different demographics I I think that yeah. Tucker Carlson hits more of the the 25 to 55 demographic and and, and Hannity is really just for the boomers yeah I don't think you can really listen to Sean Hannity and take him seriously unless you are a boomer con what they of what they call them like you i think maybe my mom still listens to hannity my mom is like my family's very conservative i grew up with uh with sean hannity and and alan combs and it was very apparent that alan combs or michael combs or alan combs am i alan, saying alan. yeah alan it was very clear that they you know he kind of looked like droopy from charlie brown like he just yeah. Looked, he played the role as the weak liberal, and Sean Hannity was the all-American guy who was, you know, standing up for uh, the soldiers and the troops. Um, but you know, who kind of plays that role now at Fox News. Um, 
what's uh, Juan Williams. Mm-hmm. He kind of plays that role now as kind of like the real radical Democrat. Yeah. So I think all these news channels do that. They get that that foil, um, that guy who kind of just plays his role. But yeah, uh, yeah. Like the token liberal, the token conservative. I think kind of Morning Joe was kind of like that before he, um, yeah, before he went anti-Trump. You he know, and Combs is dead now, and I think there's a lesson there too. That like, you know, he was making all that money during all that time and all that, but then now he's dead, and he spent the last twenty years of his life not being true to himself. You know, he spent the last twenty years of his life being a shill for you know, deliberately, you know, making the weak argument uh, in order to help inoculate the opinions of right wing war hawks in the very worst way. And he must have regretted it. You only get one life, then you're dead unless you believe in Hinduism, you know. So. I mean, can you imagine well, that's no, your role that like, yeah. well, I get up there and I say what I want to say, but I know that the only reason they have me there is because I'm not up to it. <laughs> but oh well, got to pay that more. I'm there to make the other side know, look good. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, get a smaller house, work at the bowling alley, have some self respect, you know? I don't know. Just write for something. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he works for Fox News. He can get some media job, but I guess yeah, I mean, the money. Yeah, he had a radio show. Like I said, he had yeah. a radio show in New York already for whatever. He had a career already, which I swear to God, I don't remember how I figured that out. I think it was when I read a book about Public Enemy. And they were like, yeah, the infamous episode where they went on the Alan Combs show. And I was like, that's that's Alan Combs? The Alan Combs? Because I just had never, I'd never put that. I mean, that album came out in 89 or 90. And I just had never put that together, that that was him. And I just, oh, my God, once I figured it out. Anyway, after the show, everybody go listen to Incident at 66.6 FM, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, um. uh, Scott, we're, we're we've been we can go on for like literally hours, and I, know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, uh, do we have a little bit of time to maybe ask a couple of questions from our uh, Patreon supporters? Yeah, let's uh, just do it. A couple folks wanted to pick your brain on a few topics, if that's okay. Sure. All right, let's see what we got here. Um, all right, so this first one is admittedly not something that I'm very good at talking about, but we have a Patreon subscriber who's very interested in some new types of governments. In particular, uh, he's interested in what's called nationality as a service, uh, which you can think of it as like, you know, your subscription to Netflix, right? We, you know, um, choose to buy into this. Well, the whole idea is apparently that we could buy into a government by choice. I'm for it. Listen, I just saw a Twitter thread by this brilliant college professor guy who has all these weird, like, logical fallacies and other things he's talking about. I should have retweeted something so you could go look at it. Um, that was one of the things that he talked about was, you know, the future of, you know, people completely reimagining governments where it's not proximity and a monopoly on territory, but it's, you know, um, people signing up by contract for the security services they require and all that. I say smash the state, please, as soon as you can. And let's figure out other ways to do it. And look, when people say, well, yeah, but I mean, without the government monopoly on force, I mean, what's it going to look like? The answer is the free market will take care of it, right? I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know that the free market will work it out if we have one. 
So let's concentrate on keeping the market and security services free to open entry and open exit and may the best man win in the marketplace. Absolutely right. That's awesome. So this this particular subscriber is actually working towards trying to build that down in Australia. And it's uh, if you want to check out his website, it's non-human.party. Oh, yeah, yeah. Best of luck to you, man. Cool. All right. Next question. Uh, this one actually comes from uh, Joseph uh, Solis Mullen, uh, who you had on the show and uh-huh. who we just recently had. Uh, he wanted to know, uh, what are... Uh, what are your forecasts for the Middle East in the next 10 years? And he's interested in to see how things play out, uh, you know, with the U.S. increasingly turning its attention elsewhere. That's interesting. Um, man, I have to predict the worst. I mean, I guess I predict the status quo. They can do everything they can to keep troops in Iraq and Syria, do everything they can to somehow, you know, continue to frustrate Iranian power. I really hope they get back in the Iran nuclear deal, but I don't predict any major like shift back toward the Persians. If the Biden people, you know, take their own um, results as good advice, then they should recognize that even the degree to which they have backed off already is having positive results. And you've had the Iranians and the Saudis been meeting in Baghdad and secret meetings in Iraq for months now trying to talk and work things out as soon as um, this is before Biden, when the Senate voted to end the war in Yemen, the UAE pulled their military out and they still have an armed mercenary force, including Al Qaeda on the ground there. And they're still part of the war. They pulled their main infantry forces out of the country and they immediately sent an ambassador to Tehran to go and talk to the Iranians. They're nervous that the Americans might not have our back. And if they don't, and we better figure out how to get along with the Ayatollah. So there's a real lesson in that, right? It's like a bully kid with a really tough older brother. And once that older brother says like, hey man, I'm not fighting your fights for you anymore. You get out there and get in a scrap. You're gonna have to defend yourself. It's a whole different dynamic. And you know, little brother doesn't talk so loud anymore at all. And that's exact, you know, we should just be building on that. Let's just, I'm not saying it'd be utopia. But I bet if we get out of there, there's not going to be a war. We get out of there, there's going to be a bunch of peace conferences. You know? All right, last one. Um, so we uh, we got another question about um, Afghanistan. And uh, this uh, subscriber wants to know, uh, why did the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan fall so hard and so fast when the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan lasted longer than the Soviet Union itself. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the first question is why did the government, the Soviet-backed government last so long? I think probably their opposition was a lot more divided. Um, the government that that just fell was made up of the Mujahideen, you know, many of the Mujahideen who have been against that Soviet government and their hold on power was much more tenuous. And you know, I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about the Soviet puppet government there and the history of the 80s war from their point of view to really be able to compare the two. But I can tell you that the government in Kabul just had no popular support at all. And there are people who were afraid of the Taliban being worse. But essentially, the government that they created was just the epitome of corruption and criminality. And the warlords that they put in power were you know, 
and just absolutely resent it. So the, the Mujahideen that America backed, so it goes like this. America backs the Mujahideen against the Soviets in the 80s, right? The Soviets leave, and the Mujahideen that we backed, they were the warlords that then fought this terrible civil war and tore the country apart. And then the the uh, the communist government ended up falling, I guess, in like the end of 91 or something, two years after the Soviets withdrew. Might have been after that. But then, so you had Hekmatyar and Haqqani and Dostum and Masood and all of these guys fighting over control of the country and ruthlessly so. I mean, Hekmatyar was known as the butcher of Kabul because he would just shell the place with artillery and kill like 50,000 people. He couldn't take over the city, so he just bombed it mercilessly for years. Um, And it was the Taliban then rose to power to put a stop to this, to the chaos of the Civil War. And so then they came out of the South and they, some of them had fought in the war as well, but they weren't really warlords like these other guys. And they came and basically told all the different warlords, join us or die and killed some of them and replaced the rest and took over the country. And when they took over the country in 96, they were welcomed. And even in Kabul, which is an extremely low percentage of Pashtun uh, population there, and it's really a Pashtun-based movement. um, When they got to Kabul, they were welcomed in because Masood and his warlord friends were such criminals. And and the the chaos and, and misery of the people there were such that they were happy to see the Taliban. And the same thing happened this time when they got to Kabul, never mind to, you know, um, Lashkargah and Kandahar City and all these countries in the Pashtun parts of the country. But when they got to Kabul, they were welcomed in. And that was and people said, listen, at least now it's safe to be on the street. And what they were afraid of, it wasn't that they were afraid of Taliban bombings. They were afraid of crime. And the law, the Taliban bring law and order. Now, they're corrupt at the top, of course, and they're merciless authoritarians and all that. But part of that means they don't tolerate street crime. They don't tolerate rape and they don't tolerate extortion and kidnapping and robbery and this kind of stuff. And so, you know, on the sliding scale of things, they have support there. Meanwhile, who are they replacing? A bunch of criminals, a bunch of drug dealers and child rapists and murderers and warlords and extortionists who just do nothing but steal, who have, you know, I'm your enemy written all over their face. And so the Taliban at least have, you know, some legitimacy in the sense of people perceive that they care about not just themselves, but in actually enforcing the law. And when you live in a country that's that desperately poor and in that state of violent chaos with, you know, kidnapping rings and whatever crime everywhere, then those are the decisions that you're left to make, I guess, as Carlin would say. And so, you know, they have reason to prefer these guys. Now the question is, can the Taliban lord it over the Hazaras, Uzbeks, and Tajiks any better than the Hazaras, Uzbeks, and Tajiks have been able to lord it over them for the last 20 years? Because that's what this is really about, is America backing this coalition of, you know, small minority groups of about 20% each against the Pashtuns who were about 40%, the plurality of the population of the country. So, but not the majority of it, right? So the Taliban have now bitten off a hell of a lot and it remains to be seen whether they'll be able to chew it. When they announced their first provisional government, it's almost all Pashtuns. I think it had one Uzbek or one Tajik or something on it. Um, So that's just their provisional government and we'll see what they do. Um, I do know that um, 
There's this lady named Ashley Jackson. She's been writing for the Post and the Times and things like that lately, but she had done this study, I'm going to say like three years ago. I think it was about three years ago um, where she spent all this time in Afghanistan and was talking about how after the um, drone bombing of uh, Mullah Massoud, or um, not Massoud, um, pardon me, um, oh, it's on the, Mansoor. Um, Mullah Mansoor was the leader after Mullah Omar died. And then they drone bombed him. And then the next guy that took over after him is the current top leader. His name is Hakan Zada. And Hakan Zada essentially adopted this, you know, I don't know about brilliant, but at least more intelligent strategy of instead of just blowing up every damn thing that the Americans create or their allies create, just take it all over. So if they build a school, don't blow up the school, just appoint your guy principal. And if they build a police uh, station, don't blow up the police station, just take it over, make sure your guy's the chief. And same with the mayor and same with the governor and then move on to the next one. And another major um, you know, invention of theirs was to bring Hazaras and Uzbeks and Tajiks into the government. And Hazaras are Shiites too. So that's like an even taller order than just being a sectarian, you know, um, ethnic minority. Um, but that they figured out this was the smart thing to do, um, was to bring people in and say, you don't have to be a Pashtun to be a Taliban. You want to join our movement? You're better off joining us now than later and this kind of thing. And that, you know, their government they call the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan has been really a shadow government or even really the actual government in much of the country for years now. And so, you know, once it came to taking over the country, it was like a matter of snapping their fingers. It was sort of like when the Russians uh, took Crimea, they just went outside and said, this belongs to us now. That's it. It's over. It was what the French call a coup de main, one big successful surprise attack. And in this case, almost entirely bloodless. Right. They just walked right in. And I've been predicting on my show for years that they might just walk right in when it comes down to it. There might not even be an Afghan National Army to stand against them at all. And the Afghan National Army, you know, Biden said. In getting out, which I don't care what he says to get out, but he goes, listen, you know, if these people aren't willing to fight for their country then how long should our guys be willing to fight for it? And like, OK, that's a cute way to put it and everything. But let's get real. They weren't fighting for their country. They were fighting for our country against some people in their own country. And how long can we expect them to do that? As long as they're supported by us. And in both books, I predict that as soon as we stop supporting the Afghan government and army, they'll disintegrate and the Taliban will take over. I say it plainly in both books. It's the obvious fact. And, you know, Fool's Aaron came out four years ago. And I said, like, this is how it's going to go. Page 290. In fact, somebody on Twitter said, um, which book should I read first? And some guy answered him and said, get Fool's Aaron, start on page 290, and then start back over at the beginning again. And I was like, huh, <laughs> I wonder what's going on there. So I went and got Fool's Aaron off the shelf, and I flipped to page 290, and it's like the top of the page is about how the Afghan government and army are so weak, and the bottom of the page is how the Taliban are ascendant now. It's on. In fact, it's um, the subchapter. The last subchapter ends with the weakness of the Kabul regime, and then and the new subchapter starts. And the new subchapter is Taliban back in strength, or Taliban back in force. And it's about how you know it says right there. As soon as we leave, they're going to take over the place. No problem. 
Now, now does now does this clairvoyance that you seem to have around uh, the Afghanistan situation does that extend out to like say maybe the stock market? Because I'm really looking for <laughs> for a like a <laughs> quick. Well, it's a giant bubble now, and it's going to pop, but I can't tell you when. So I have no <laughs> <Okay>. idea. <laughs> Uh, but I, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you that the war in Somalia is just like the war in Afghanistan. As soon as America stops intervening in Somalia, the government of Mogadishu will fall. And I don't know if Al-Shabaab will walk right in. I guess they probably will. Uh, I don't know how long they'll last. I, I put less money on them successfully ruling Somalia than the Taliban ruling Afghanistan. But, you know, in Iraq War II, we're fighting for the supermajority. And so, yeah, we won. Although you might have noticed that the side we won for told us, get the hell out. We hate you when the war was over. So you can't quite call it a victory. But they fought to expel the 20% minority and install the 60% supermajority. So, okay, that's sustainable in its own sense, you know, in a way. But in Afghanistan and in Somalia and in, well, Yemen's different. They haven't even been able to successfully create a puppet government in Yemen. They're trying to overthrow the government in Yemen and can't. But in, in Somalia, the government they've created there is essentially analogous to the government in Afghanistan. It only lives, survives on American largesse. This is the joke I meant to say on the Kennedy show that I forgot to say. I just said it was a Potemkin village, but nobody knows what Potemkin village means anymore. That's old fashioned talk. What I meant to say was that the government in Kabul was like Solyndra or Citigroup entirely uh. dependent on American largesse for survival, you know? And that would have got a laugh out of them, maybe. A slight chuckle. But anyway, um, so that's what I know about that. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for answering the questions. Um, and if you're out there listening, you can join our Patreon and you get to ask us questions to ask many of our nice guests. So... Oh, yeah. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> hey, join my um, Patreon as long as you're on Patreon.com, too. Yeah. Yeah, also join, join Scott. <laughs> you don't join get anything Scott's special, Patreon. though. <laughs> um, but also, make sure that you um, are listening to the Scott Horton Show. Um, if you want to know where you know, I get 90% of my talking points, then listen to, Scott, listen to the Scott Horton Show and read Scott's books. Enough already. Just skip the middle, man. Go right here. to the source. <laughs> just go, there's no need to listen to this podcast just go right to scott horn um scott, thanks for thanks for joining us it's always a pleasure um we are really excited to see you uh debate bill crystal in a couple of weeks i think danny are you going to be there yeah i'll be there we're both, we're both there we got our tickets we're ready to go um and uh we're excited to see this go down i think a lot of people are well i'm terrified so I hope I don't screw uh, up. But what? We'll see how what? Don't, don't, don't be. You'll be fine. <laughs> I've never really been in that format look, before, you know. They really pick the. They really pick the smiley, like the. You know, a lot of the neocons look like uh, lagoon creatures, um, like Richard Pearl and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they look. They just look like monsters. Especially him. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um. At least Bill Crystal's kind of smiley. You know, he has something about him. He looks kind of like, oh, he's Bill, jolly Bill Crystal. Yeah. So it's going to be, it'll be interesting. But I think um, your arguments will definitely be much stronger, especially in light of what we just witnessed in Afghanistan. All right. Well, I better not blow it in front of all of you guys. Oh, we'll see how you'll it goes. Do fine. You'll just, do fine. Just, just repeatedly say page 290. Yeah, there you go. 
I told you on page 290. <laughs> Why don't we just all start chanting war criminal, war criminal, war criminal. <laughs> well, maybe we'll yeah, we'll start it up. <laughs> I better get my page number right if I'm going to claim that. Yeah. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, thank you, boys. I uh, really appreciate you having me on a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on and thanks for giving us so much time again. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks. All right, man. See you in New York. All right. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.